What comes up must come down. Bow, bow, bow. Spinning wheel, got to go round. Jump all the troubles by the riverside. Ride a painted pony, let the spinning wheel ride. Got no money, hey, you got no hope. Bow, 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 bow. Spinning wheel, all alone. Drop all your troubles on you. You never learn. Ride a painted pony, let the spinning wheel turn. Did you find the direction sign on the straight and narrow highway? Do you sign the reflection sign and showing you? Then show you the colors that are real. Someone is waiting just for you. All your troubles by the riverside. Ride a painted pony, let the spinning wheel round. <laughs> change this. It's not supposed to be chatting. It's supposed to be audience everyone. Oh, oh, okay. There that is. That's why that did that. We'll get that out of there. I don't want to be there. I want to be in talk shows and podcasts. I've never chatted once in my life. How dare you accuse me of something like that. To say that I would waste my precious time on this earth mindlessly prittle prattling and listening to my own voice. Something so pathetic and masturbatory as that, sir, I demand satisfaction for such calumny. Who would think that I could do that? No, it's fine. I know I do that. It's fine. We all got to do something is the thing. This doesn't, this hurts fewer people than other options would have been, including me. You can make yourself into anything, but you can't make your context Context makes you, and then you decide how to live within it in a way that maximizes the, the positive feelings of you and the people around you in concentric circles of relationship. And the thing is, the reason I subscribe to this is because it eliminates uh, the supposed contradiction between best interest of the self and best interest of others. The, the, the illusion that there is a distinction between them, uh, is created by circumstances of class rule for the most part, but also interpersonal conflict, trauma, as people call it, and, you know, the vicissitudes of living in a natural world and, and being thrust against one another. Uh, like, it's all made manifest in the moment. Real conflict exists between people. But what we mistake is we take that and we eternalize it into a relationship. That's not an, the eternal element of the relationship. That's the contingent specific part of the relationship, the recognition, the deeper recognition of the logical and emotionally coherent extension of the self outward 
That's deeper. And that explains why there's still love in a universe as hateful and horrible as this one. Why people still do act on behalf of others. We know it's we know it happens. We know in our own lives when when we are emotionally connected to the well-being of someone else such that we recalibrate our own understanding of what our best interest might be. Our our self-interest as the fucking uh, pu uh, public choice monsters like to talk about. Like in the entire uh, undergirding theology, and it is a theology of, of modern capitalism, is that there is an eternal conflict between the self-interest and the community interest. And as I said, that is a contingency of class rule that has been taken uh, from something that ebbs and flows as a, uh, in a dynamic and stable relationship with the environment to something that destroys that balance and uh, obliterates the feedback loop between the natural world and human society. And what predicates that fatal fracture, that rupture that is going to doom the society one way or the other, it's the uh, denial of a expansive conception of self-interest. What rises up, up, up us up out of natural relationship create something that transcends nature was cooperation, not competition. I don't know how this can be denied. The stuff that uh, West fans of the uh, capitalist style fans of Western civilization like to point to as the fruits of human uh, endeavor are not the fruits first of conflict. They are the first fruits first of cooperation because what are they based in language? Language is not created uh, by a conflict, it's created by cooperation. Now, a cooperation that is fueled by conflict with others, which is why, you know, we have these concentric rings of humanity. At a certain point, those who are strangers to us, temporally, spatially, uh, can't be given the same uh, consideration as people we're closer to if we're to keep those bilateral trust relationships that form everything. So there is the pressure of conflict, but the actual dynamic that births language is collective and cooperative. Then you get contingent temporary regimes of difference and oppression that, that uh, arise based on different conditions of technology. The difference between the stages that are supposedly to mar Marxism. People say, ah, it's stagist. That's bad. That's not how history works. That is only a attempt to periodize a process of technological sophistication. That's it. The history of class society, the history of class society, that is class society under regimes of language and recording and, cult and, and, and physical culture that persists that we know of, that we can look back on and reconstruct. Reconstruction, the evidence for sufficient for reconstruction is what makes something historical historical class struggle is these cycles that go up and down and led to destruction of societies that create one order of domination that persists in one ecological condition and then break down under changes in those conditions because it cannot change internally, because that would mean to surrender its antagonisms, which are inside a society illusory. And because they're illusory, under pressure, they often dissolve. 
How do we, we know from, from much experience that under conditions of crisis, yes, people fight each other, but they also come together and more effectively survive. There's a bottleneck in human evolution of 5,000 people who survived a, a, clim a massive, dramatic climate change in Africa in early human history. The people who made it through that bottleneck did it, yes, by fighting, maybe a little bit, but way more day-to-day, moment-to-moment, way more cooperation. Uh, someone says I'm like an anarchist. No, no, no. No. How dare you? There's a reason that people like uh, David Graeber like to fixate on the period right before this happens, because then they can point to this fluidity. But the thing is, we're looking through the prism of capitalism, and the thing about capitalism is that it is an inflection point of technology. If you use technology broadly to mean everything from like the uh, the devices used to you know save labor in a manufacturing process, you know stuff that emerges out of uh, uh, shipbuilding and and whatever uh, uh, and and trade, warfare like those technological changes, but also just fucking Protestantism as a social technology, the written word as a social or the printed word rather as a social technology. That confluence of technology takes humans from one relationship to their environment to another, from one degree of embeddedness and one degree of uh, uh, of uh, intimacy, feedback removed through urbanization, techno technological abstraction, and the death of revealed religion. All that stuff comes together and creates a new world where we are now... Uh, embedded institutionally in technologies of capitalism that sustain our sense of ourselves as individuals, like our deepest uh, human subjectivity, the experience of our lives, the stuff that we, not the trauma, but the day-to-day, -day, that happened, then that happened. Like the, the creation of an understanding of the world with us at a stable center. That is predicated on these institutions. And it means they have to be taken over and used for collective good if we are to sustain this subjectivity. The subjectivity that anarchists seek to preserve by not going through this process of, uh, of rationalization that they're terrified of, that will eat up their precious uh, 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 subjectivity, is actually the only thing they can preserve it, because the Anarchist uh, uh, recipe is for uh, just the cyclical grinding into oblivion uh, of everyone uh, out within, caught within the lowering lower half of the gears of this machine. Because like the, the anarchists, like they, they do make a very strong point in how contingent all this is. But the real th funny thing is that 
they think that they're like 19th century anarchists because like you know i know from experience having read anarchist literature and dabbled with it as a younger man uh, that the lodestars are things like the uh, Spanish Civil War. Uh, and, and like, uh, uh, Spanish anarchism, which flows out of the experience of the feudal rural subject in the, the direct exposure of feudal rural subjects in, in uh, mostly southern Spain in the mid-19th century after the triumph of liberalism imported from France, you have this direct, con the direct, like dropping a, a um, like an ice cube onto a fucking hot griddle. You have this inert, relatively inert, feudal subject in the latifundias of southeastern, western Spain who are made to come into contact with capitalism basically instantaneously in the 19th century. Rather than, as happened in... Uh, France and in specifically England and the, the Netherlands before them, this process of, uh, of of moving through a development from rural subjects to urban ones, from uh, feudal subjects to capitalist ones, from people relating in a social matrix to people relating in a, uh, a estranged market. like the, That process created new subjectivities that people inhabited over time. The mid-19th century is the uh, inert, relatively inert, feudal subject of rural Spain brought into a capitalist social relationship essentially overnight. Once, they, uh, once the Spanish Reformation comes in the form of the disposition of church and municipal lands, the enclosure that allows for subsistence living among these very marginal uh, peasants in the very bad lands of Andalusia specifically, and Estramadura and like, Because only the periphery, only the coastal areas of Spain really have uh, land that sustains long-term deep agriculture because they're the only lands that are irrigated properly. So you have the establishment in a ring that extends from the Basque country in the Pyrenees down to Ca uh, Catalonia in the south, uh, or in the, I'm sorry, the northeast, then down along the coast, the Levant, uh, Valencia. Uh, you have there fertile lands that can produce real surpluses and sustain in the aftermath of feudalism as it's sort of uh, uh, shifting away, can, as the feudal dues are being relieved, can sustain those former uh, tenants to become smallholders. And so you have uh, smallholding peasantry in these relatively well-off areas in the periphery of Spain. But in the middle, and in the south, the southwest specifically, south of Madrid, the, this is much more marginal land, that, uh, intensive, uh, intensive cultivation, and also the use for pasture lands for sheep has rendered much less fertile over time. At, a very, at the very moment that the, uh, that the leeway that the feudal system allowed for people to stay on the land or near the land is kicked out from under you. No. Your feudal rights are, are your feudal responsibilities are gone, but so are your feudal rights. If you cannot afford to pay, pay for the tenancy on this land, you don't have it. You cannot go and graze your sheep on on public lands or any of this stuff. That is all owned. It is all being put to profitable use or left fallow as their owner sees it. And this throws a huge chunk of uh, the rural peasantry into a position of landlessness. 
Yes, somebody asks, the Muslims didn't really have feudalism. Did the Spanish reintroduce it? Yes, they did. In fact, around the time, I, we didn't get into it too much in Hell of Earth, but during the period we're talking about, on the land, there is a reinsurfing of the Spanish uh, peasants. Like they, the, the process, of, yes, they had introduced serfdom with their victory, and then they had uh, uh, lightened the ties as many other countries did in the post-Black Death era. Or, I'm sorry, but like in, in the early modern era, because it's all post-Black Death. Uh, but then, uh, in the in the uh, po in the crisis period that happens after the the golden age ends, they start increasing feudal obligations and refeudalizing the countryside, because you got a problem of you have uh, your agriculture was not getting more productive, so that means it needed to be more labor intensive. But when you rationalize that relationship, almost overnight, feudal obligations are banned in 1888, or I'm sorry, 1811. Uh, the, the church lands and municipal lands are sold off in 1837. And around the same time, uh, capital is starting to formulate in the Basque country and in Catalonia, these places that actually have natural resources and uh, relatively uh, uh, prosperous cropland. They're a building industry. So this group of increasingly dispossessed uh, peasants become a rural and an urban proletariat. Some stay in the countryside and work like for very little money, only on the harvest, and are essentially unemployed the rest of the year. Uh, or they go to predominantly, some, some of them go up to the Basque country, but many more go down to Bilbao, where they have... Uh, uh, they have a textile industry that builds up around this uh, uh, agricultural capital and foreign capital from France and England. And they're encountering uh, capitalism as a subjectivity that is fully foreign to them. These are not a class of like artisans who've been solely introduced into urban life and then turned into, uh, generationally turned into proletarians. These are people who went to, people who understood themselves as on the land and of the land to being cast into this non-person status in a land-based society, in a land-based religious order. I know Bilbao is in the Basque country. Did I say otherwise? And so their experience of the uh, modern subject of liberal subjectivity is to spit it out, to spew it out. And I think one way and a, a way to understand the CNT and the Spanish anarchist movement in general is this collective renunciation of engaging in the process of turning into a capitalist subject. Marxist uh, socialism emerges among and is embraced by those people who are early to the process of proletarianization. So the socialist movement in Spain comes after anarchism and comes uh, first to the capital, which is not an industrial center. Uh, it has a working class among like typesetters for newspapers and the building trades. These are people who have worked for wages with their skills to extract a relatively high, compared to others, including in the countryside, standard of living and upward mobility. So when they hear how are we going to get more for us as workers, 
the Marxist call of work through the institution of capitalism makes sense because they're embedded in it to the point where they are seeing returns for it. The rural proletarians of Andalusia Aragon, and uh, Aragon and, and, and Catalonia, who formed the bulk of the anarchist movement, uh, are outside of that process. They never get there. They are never integrated. They are at, made to. They are put to war by their local uh, 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 capitalists because there is no strong centralizing reforming state that can ride herd on these family-sized firms that are in Catalonia, for example. And so instead of recognizing unions and negotiating in a way that could see benefits for collaborating with capitalism, collaborating with the state, if we can understand the state as separable from capitalism, which Marxists do and anarchists don't. Why? Because they're they are experiencing it from a, literally a different vantage point, a different relationship temporally and spatially to a idea, the uh, Christian millennium of the European peasantry, which is the village commune without the bosses, which now, because they've been kicked out by the so-called Catholic Church, includes the church. So they don't go skip, they don't go to Protestantism, they don't get an alternative religious explanation for the world. Because it's the 19th century and they're getting capitalism full in the face, they switch directly to an alternative to religion. Because anarchism's social values were pretty much identical to medieval Christianity. The early exponents of Spanish capital of, of anarchism traveled the countryside like fucking mendicant friars. They lived among the people in ostentatious virtue. They didn't uh, drink. They didn't gamble. They didn't smoke. They didn't eat meat. They were straight-edge, social, secular saints. And they pointed to this, uh, uh, this big rock candy mountain that is just the social gospel of medieval Christianity. And why shouldn't it be? These people are literally medieval Christians. They have not gone through the rock tumbler of demystification uh, de that urban populations largely had in other parts of Europe by this period, the late 8th, 19th, early 20th century. They are, the anarchists are, essentially the Anabaptists of the Spanish Reformation. And there's a lot of them because the system is creating a lot of them. Because unlike the other capitalizing European Western countries that had their... Uh, 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 empires to dump out the negative externalities of capitalism development to, or in the case of France, when they lost their the the, the their uh, they lost the the main part of their empire, uh, they just went nuts and had a fucking revolution and revolutionized their social institutions in this more egalitarian framework and creating nationalism in the process. Uh, those people were ready for this to to to, to move through a, a capitalist subjectivity a, that they already had. The, the 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 Spanish outside of this process pushed to the margins of it and having like the worst life living like they were hungrier they were literally hungrier than poor people in these other European countries. Now of course those people are less hungry because they've got a the, like Napoleon's army is conquering Europe 
or the Europeans are, or the English are conquering North America and India. Like they're displacing the hungry mouths outward. Like uh, in the late 1600s, uh, I'm sorry, in the mid 1600s, England had the last of its famine ever. It never had a famine again after that, which used to be a cyclical feature of European uh, uh, agriculture. You get a few bad crops and people would starve because there was nothing to stop that from happening. The last one happened in England in the 1600s, I think during or maybe before the uh, the English Civil War. And so that was the end of uh, famines in England, but of course it was the beginning of famines in India. Now you could say, oh, India had famines before. Yes, it did, but it had a indigenous way of dealing with them that over time exposure to the uh, European trade network, the imposition of capitalism through the world system, stripped they stripped them of that capacity, and so they they ate they went hungry and starved. Ireland too. Ireland was a net exporter of calories during the entire Irish potato the entire potato famine, because the the productive uh, acreage in Ireland was taken by big uh, absentee landlord latifundias, much like in southern Spain. And the difference here between Spain and the other European countries, they lost their empire. And now it's coming home earlier. Because they lost it first. And why did they lose it first? Because they got it first. Because whatever social network gets power, once it can no longer expand, which is what happened to Spanish colonialism uh, in Europe and elsewhere in the 1600s, when they lost... They, they, they lost uh, Expand, they lost their expansionary edge of settlement in the Americas, and they lost uh, the Netherlands. And then they lose uh, the, what they have in Latin America in the early 1800s. So they lose it first because they can't reform their institutions in the face of this crisis because their institutions have been made by victory. The Dutch fall for the same thing. The English rise. They beat the French. The defeated French turn inward because they can no longer expand outward and they have a revolution that creates this new synthesized uh, subjectivity and political, and, and, uh, political econo economy and technological structure of state that is capable of much more than these feudal remnant states that were dragging themselves towards modernity could. And that made everybody adjust, including the Spanish. And that means it made everybody, against their will, capitalize their economies. And that had consequences. And in an underdeveloped country like Spain, the consequences are that your most exploited people are now able to mobilize using mass media and politics uh, mechanisms like newspapers, uh, cinemas, radio, the concept of the union and political party. This is stuff that the German peasants who rose in the 17, in the 1500s would have killed for. And this is essentially the same group. And these are also, by the way, the same people who form the, the core of the Red Army uh, once Mao reorients, reorients the Chinese communists to the countryside. Landless Hakka uh, peasantry in the south of China.
I think it's, by the way, just parenthetically, the way that all this is generated by the necessity of uh, of climactic change, how we're all really, we are tr- we are all only reacting to the knock on the door from our uh, uh, ecology, which our systems of power obscure from us. The place where many of the conquistador leaders, including Hernando Cortez, came from in Spain was called is called Estramadora. And that is that means like the ex, someone knows what it means, but it's like the extreme extremities. It is the boondocks of boondocks. It's the least. Uh, uh, it's the least. It's it's I believe where. Uh, uh, but it's got some of the worst land in the country. Extremely hard. It's rocky soil. Very little real agriculture there. And that's where guys like Cortez, who were of this Hidalgo class of former knights who now had nothing to rule over, they go off and they decide to conquer the new world. And they their extremity uh, fuels this momentary hegemony for Spain that they can't hold on to. Because things change. A new, new Other countries respond to their actions and they can't respond in turn. And we are at the same point in the, our cycle. The difference between our current reality, though, and all of theirs is that this is the first truly global uh, regime of, um, like, unified global machine of uh, a mode of production. Like, we have other things embedded within capitalism, but we have a global capitalism now. And what collapse looks like under those circumstances cannot be conceived of because all other cases had been localized. It's the local environment that's knocking on your door which allows for equalization across a bio. We are now getting the door is not being knocked on, but there is no exterior out. There's no way off. There's no vent. Uh, someone wants to know why Spain didn't do Portugal like they did the Basque country in Catalonia. We talk about this on Hell on Earth, but uh, during the, the Thirty Years' War, the cost of fighting it was really pissing off the regional powers because while Spain was able to create a precocious dynastic state, it still was riven by these regional overlords that it had to placate. It had placated them all through the the uh, Reconquesta and that relationship of like military tribute for the process of kicking the Moors out of Iberia defined the Spanish political system until its collapse. And it was able to, through these desperate Hidalgos conquering half the world, create this new power. But it could not sustain that as times progressed, entropy entered the system, and other states mobilized against them. So in the mid in the uh, 1630s, they're spending a lot of money uh, to fight the Thirty Years' War and to fight the French. It's pissing off all the regional powers who don't feel like it's their fight. The Catalans rise against having troops quartered there. People talk about the Third Amendment and how it's silly. It came from a real experience of uh, domination, of having to pay for and quarter uh, the troops of the king. And uh, so a quartering of troops helped spark the Reaper's War. But then they tried to get the top uh, gentlemen in Portugal to lead an army to come and conquer uh, uh, Catalonia. This is when Portugal was part of uh, the Spanish uh, Empire after the Union, the Iberian Union of eight, six, 1580, I believe. 
after uh, King, uh, uh, what was he? Is he King Stephen? The idiot who went and re Leroy Jenkins himself, Sebastian, King Sebastian, King Sebastian of, uh, of Portugal, Leroy Jenkins himself to death in North Africa uh, in a absolutely harebrained crusade. Uh, and he's married to uh, one of the Habsburgs of Spain and they take over. Uh, that's similarly, by the way, how the Habsburgs end up taking over Hungary because they have uh, they married into the Hungarian royal family, but then the king of Hungary gets murked at the Battle of Mohac. Uh, and that means that the uh, Hungarian throne then goes to the Habsburgs. They got so fucking lucky, which is, again, why they were not able to win, because they were going on luck. They were not changing with the times like the other struggling middle powers did. Once you create a situation and you're on top of it, you get lazy inherently. Uh, because what's worked in the past should keep working. It's not any default in your character. It is simply a human response to stimuli. We have limitations. And then the other countries emerge and they, they eat their lunch. And that means Spain doesn't really defeudalize until the mid-20th century, 19th century. And so anarchists were trying to preserve this medieval way of being. And the thing is, from our perspective, wanting to get closer in some way to a enchanted relationship to our uh, experience of the world. When I say enchanted, I simply mean my sense of self-interest extends beyond the self. My sense of where I reside extends outside of me. That's all enchanted means. And that's what we, were we want from the medieval world. That's what we're pining towards. Now, the 19th century Spanish and 20th century Spanish anarchists that's a living thing to them, and they're trying to save it, even as they're being proletarianized. And that is, I think, it's doomed, but it is heroic, and it is to be celebrated because it's the human spirit ex expressing itself. What it should not be is fetishized into practice among people like us who are not experiencing the feudal uh, idol as like a real remnant of our lives. We have had that ripped from us. If we go back, we will only create a dead, nostalgic version at the point of a gun, which is what fascism is. Fascism is just the attempt to recreate the medieval idol with the machinery of power by just tearing our frontal lobe out, but you can't do it. All you'll do is empower capitalism and become an instrument of it, which is why there is no dissident right. You're just dressing up your worship of the death machine as your own will. But it is not. You are uh, you are surrendering the last of your humanity. There is, no, there is nothing honorable about it. We have to understand that if we are in this subjectivity, that we have to move through this subjectivity. And that means that if we are to maintain it and transcend it, we have to deal with the situation as at hand. And that means trying to seize control of these machines that have been built to strangle us with the idea that we can reprogram them. And the thing is, if we do believe in ourselves, we should believe in our ability to do that. And anarchists talk about how like it's, it's a faith in the human spirit. Well, if you have a faith in the human spirit, you should have a faith that that's possible. Like every, it's all last men. Like we are, we are Nietzsche's last man, and that includes especially the people insisting that they're different because they've got a podcast or because they uh, they epically uh, pill people on the JQ or whatever the fuck. They think that because they have rendered themselves uh, uh, 
indigestible by popular media that they uh, have like renounced their uh, soul-deadening immersion in the thing that robs them of their life every day, their lives of their vitality every day. And I've, we're all in this situation. We're all being drained. And we are all resisting it to the best of our ability. The best of our ability would be if we were able to do it together. And that's always going to be the hope. But anyway, this is why, uh, so I'm starting writing. I'm, I'm finishing up the, uh, the note-taking before I start writing the Spanish Civil War series that I'm going to do later this year. And I've said before, like, I want to do one that pisses the people who fetishize the Spanish anarchists and the people who think they were incredibly annoying and uh, stan the Communist Party that ended up basically taking over uh, Republican Spain by the middle of the war. Uh, piss them both off. but And I do want to piss them both off by trolling both of them. Uh, and showing sort of the absurdity of both their situations, because both their situations are absurd. But, because, like, yes, the, the communists can make fun of the anarchists all day for being a bunch of goofs, and they were, but, like, they're, they were banking on an alliance with the democracies against Hitler that was just never going to happen. And, like, their inability to see that makes their whole striving for the uh, uh, acceptance of the democracies look pathetically naive in retrospect. And the evidence shows was always misplaced. But I don't want to just do that. I want to have real sympathy for every everyone because I feel like like in both movements and in the left, the, the working class movement in general in the in the 19th and 20th century, you see like the the spirit of man crying out against its extinction. And so anybody who's like moved to act by that in one way or the other is, I think, worthy of respect and should be regarded as a heroic being. But the tragedy is that a hero has a fault and that unless they can coordinate their actions and uh, eliminate our, their individual faults, those will, over time, overcome all other goal, uh, strivings. And that's what happened. They couldn't trust across the chasm of time and space the relationship to the medieval uh, village idol that, that, that defined uh, the, the split. So yeah, I, I want to I troll both sides, make fun of both sides, but also give my absolute respect to two sides and to more than anything emphasize just the tragic nature of the th situation. Like, I think now at this point in history, we can acknowledge these events as tragedy rather than have to assume that we need to, like, pick one side or another to defend because it has a strategic or tactical uh, valence. It doesn't. The world described is so different now that the way we're going to struggle our way, uh, the way we're going to resist the extinguishment of, you know, our last individual humanity is going to... Uh, occur at a much less grand register, and we just have to accept that. And that's that's not bad news. It only feels that way from the point of our uh, absolutely hyperinflated, delusional, honestly psychotic individual egos.
See, this is interesting. Somebody says, for me, it's the opposite. It's too early to tell one way or the other. I completely agree. But once again, we're talking about a new cycle. I just think that a lot of people seem stuck believing that we are still meaningfully at a point within the cycle we're in and not overdetermined terminally towards um, cyclical collapse. But out of that will be a new dynamic that we are also part of because it's not one thing than the other. It's overlapping things because it's all one thing. The cycles is, is just like period, the periodization of uh, the modes of production or the stages of history. It's just a backwards narrativization of a continuous process, which you could define most broadly as the accumulation of entropy within the uh, human social organism. Someone asks, how's the meditation going? It's actually going very well. Uh, I have been meditating basically every day, like in, in, for an amount of time that I would have only a few years ago thought literally impossible because I just couldn't sit. Uh, I, I, I cheated a little bit because I have to sit back onto something. I can't just sit freely because I do have big, incredibly uh, herniated discs in my back. And I, I don't think I'm enough of an enlightened being to overlook that for long enough, you know, to be able to sit long enough. So I feel like that's a, that's whatever, it's fine. But I've been finding it to be very uh, interesting. I feel like I'm unleashing kundalini energy. You know, I'm like, I'm getting, it feels like sometimes like I'm getting a neck massage without any hands on me. Uh, and that's interesting. It feels like I'm uncorking something. Also, uh, I am thinking more in images than in words while I'm meditating, which is very interesting uh, because I have like, I would say that like the time that I was felt most hopeless as a human being is the time that my mental terrain was the most uh, dryly literal and the least uh, uh, iconic and symbolic. I mean, I know, I know that language is a symbol too, but for me, it means a literal vocal, uh, 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 stream of consciousness. Like, I know that this is a big phenomenological question. Like, how do people experience consciousness? I can only speak for myself, and I know this is not universal. I experience, not anymore, or at least less, but still somewhat, I experience consciousness as a voice in my head. The closest thing. I couldn't, it's not like I felt like I was hearing it in my head. I knew it wasn't being perceived sensuously, but it was words in sentences. And that was basically it. Like, I was looking at what I was looking at, and then I was thinking about what I was thinking at. And that was when I was the most uh, hopeless and like unknowingly depressed in my life. Like I was deeply, deeply unhappy and paralyzed and unable to really do anything and include enjoy anything. Uh, and that was a big reason. Uh, but I would say that over the, over the years and certainly with meditation, I have, I am able not to stop it, can't stop it, but I've stopped, more importantly, I have stopped judging myself for it not stopping. And then by just letting it run and like breathing and, you know, all that stuff, I'm seeing things like I'm actually seeing uh, uh, like a, a more uh, sensuous, imagistic, uh, and that is more visceral 
uh, understanding of the world. Oh, the beginning Buddhist book that I recommended was uh, is called Mindfulness in Plain English, which I highly recommend. Apparently, it's like a high school textbook in Thailand. And of course, I, I would not I, I would not be honest right now if I did not say, well, this is also happening. My body is experiencing weird pains that I associate in my mind with different uh, fatal uh, conditions that I have experienced through media, either representations of or descriptions of. And so while I'm having this experience, I'm also having these feelings. And so my, my experience of this is this bifurcated uh, sense of spiritual progress coupled with a mounting physical sensation of like uh, biological extinguishment, which is because I was brought up believing that the two could not coexist. So therefore, if I am dying, my spirit must be extinguished. Uh, and so spirituality, like getting beyond the narrative in my head, getting beyond just this dry stream of consciousness is death because I cannot imagine live, living that way. So I am creating this uh, low-grade psychosis, I guess, around my physical bodily conditions. And then hallucinating these feelings. Now, they might be real is the thing. And I am just narrativizing these sensations. Uh, but what made me like able to move forward with this and not be trapped in a cycle of, of, of neuroses is when I realized that they're the same thing. Like, okay, you know, might die, might just be enlightened and then go on to another thing. The subjective experience of it will be similar enough that there's nothing to be afraid of. That's how I make sense of it. And that is why I've been doing this for the past three years instead of doing therapy. Maybe I should have been doing therapy, but uh, this is what I have been doing instead. Uh, it's given me the ability to feel okay most of the time. Obviously, I have ups and downs. I understand that humanity, a human being is mostly juice. Like the juice is what feels. The, the, like what you're really feeling, the sensations of your body existing is the movement of juice through your body. So squishings of juices around. And so the thing about juices is the juices do not stand still. They cannot, by definition. They move. Uh, and... So I'm just feeling the juices moving through my body, and that's sometimes going to feel good, and sometimes it's going to feel bad. And I have accepted that, that the juice level is not really up to me, because I think what, what, what hurt me, and I think hurts a lot of people, is you feel just bad, and you can't name it, and then you try to name it with things that are in your life, and then you sort of fixate on that, and it pulls you away from the life you are leading, and it, make, it poisons your relationship to everything around you. I'm seeing for myself, maybe this, maybe others understand what this is like. Uh, but if you're not trying to find a purpose, if you're not trying to find a narrative of like what it is, 
uh, you can just sort of like let bad feeling move through you and still have a residue of, you know, just basic uh, happiness and uh, the sense of gratitude connected to your memory of what life can be. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to become the, the, the wind in the keyhole. Somebody says that uh, they understand what it was like and weed fixed it for me. This is very funny, actually, because the weed is what makes me feel most intensely the uh, uh, the bodily changes. Like, the weed is where I feel like, oh, like that hurts. Oh, what's wrong with me? But that, I think, has uh, become, for me, a, a essentially exposure therapy. So I am exposing myself to this and I'm able to experience the pain and then wrap around it, not denial and panic, which it used to be, but wrap around it. Okay. What? So what? What if this is real? What if this is like directly tied to a, a, a impending narrative of some sort of extinguishment? What is permanent about that condition? The pain that you're feeling and that you're afraid of, it is, by definition, limited. It has an end, like all things do. What's at the other side of that experience? And it is no experiences, and also all of them. And the uh, coming to the condition of total knowledge leaves you with the last flip of the coin on ecstasy. As you work through the contradictions of a mind that has been defined by traumas that knock it away from its understanding of the world so that it can be an individual and operate as an individual, those all are wound back in. And that's all a process that is painful. But if pain can be understood as a temporary condition, and the knowledge, the faith in a final evening, negation of the negation that leaves you with the residue of grace. I think that's what keeps me relatively, uh, relatively chill and certainly happier than I ever used to be. And I think that is what I, that's what, that's what validates my faith is that every, every experience I have in which I am living that truth is good for the most part. And ones I don't are bad, you know? And I know it's like, I also know that I am in a, a moment of my life where I am pretty much free of any want. I'm like in a zone of total contentment, but you know, of course the knowledge that that's temporary robs you of the ability to enjoy it in the moment. At least it does for me because I am addicted to wanting everything all the time. Good. But if I can accept that the flip side of yes, this idol is temporary is that well, anything I'm afraid of interrupting. It is also temporary. I can just live with that. And since that's what makes me feel good, then that has to be what is true. Because it feels good while also 
telling me I can fall short, but it's telling me that everybody else I know, everyone around me, every everyone I interact with in my life should be treated with total respect and love. Now, I don't do that all the time because I am a bundle of these contradictions created by trauma. But I can hear that voice and I can honor it when, I, when I'm lucky enough to be able to. So I don't know. I don't know if anybody has any experience with uh, hypochondria or other mental problems, therapy. If that sounds, if any of that makes sense, or if it sounds like someone should be getting a fucking, uh, uh, either somebody should be getting a butterfly net or I should check myself into the hospital. I don't know. Because that for me is the same thing that keeps me doing it. It's like, would it be, am I ignoring a reasonable urge to do, to do either of those things? And the thing is, I'm not, you know, like I, uh, I don't avoid the doctor. I go, I get my, I get my blood done. I, 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 they, they give me the, I tell them what's wrong with me. And, and beyond that, I really don't have anything else I can do. If I start like trying to find something more specific, then you are into territory where what is motivating you? The desire to avoid the necessity of death because if it's coming in that way then you can't really stop it if something happens changes you can change when you need to but beyond like doing pro prophylactic things like trying to eat well and exercise uh you just have to live with it and the thing is living with it is good Living with it feels good. Saint therapy. I don't know what that is. It's a good name. Just as a... Uh, Saint Therapy, patron saint of uh, of Upper West Side Jews. What does Saint Therapy sound? Yes, <laughs> Saint Therapy is the Metallica movie. Thank you, uh, CD Baby. That's very funny. And so I know that like me talking to this, talking about this stuff is therapeutic to me because while saying it out loud and then having people validate it makes me think, all right, I have a minimal amount of coherence to others, meaning that the words that I'm saying have a minimal amount of conviction because I'm, as I'm saying them, I think they're true. So since it feels good to say them in that it gets good response and it feels like I am getting something off my chest. I, I have a subjective experience of relief from saying the words and then the validation from others that yes, these are words that make sense in this order. That is the, that's the plumb line that tells me that my faith is justified. I, that's, I hope nobody screen caps that that looks, 
That looked very bad what I just did. I was just trying to show the putting a plumb line down. I, oh, God, I'm doing it again. How do I feel about the Titanic submarine song? I don't, it seems to me to be, there's no, I mean, you, I don't understand what you could talk about about it. I mean, it's, you want to tell a joke? Okay. But like, that's it. But it's very interesting to me that, that like the emblematic discourse cycles that exist at this level, that this stage of social media, this decaying stage of social media uh, is, so much based on debates about the etiquette of how to respond to situations. Like there's not even in our meta discussions, a question of action. Like we've totally obliterated the idea that we could even conceptualize, Hey, imagine someone doing something that is beyond our conception. We cannot meaningfully exp uh, feel a sense of, uh, of, um, Empathy. We cannot meaningfully empathize with people who do stuff. Like, this is what happens when you get to the poisonous end state of, of Western isolated individualism, where you cannot imagine anybody else having any meaning. Your life is the only life that matters. Your experiences are the only experiences that matter. You just cannot go by that barrier. When you're at that end point, you, your limited capacity for empathy is extended almost exclusively to people that you can recognize, one way or the other. I can only empathize with somebody who I relate to. This is why people talk about wanting a relatable people in movies and TV shows. They need to be able to relate because otherwise there's no reason for them to care. And we collectively, the people, the thwarted people talking on social media, collectively cannot empathize with somebody who does anything. So all of our meaningful debates are the, around the hypothetical act of commenting on someone else doing something. That's where we're stuck. Talking about well, how should we, as a sterile and neutered mass of completely uh, controlled drones, completely housebroken puppies, how should we uh, uh, arrange ourselves? What is the ethic and etiquette of arranging your facial features when something happens around us? And it's nobody's fault. Like, this is just where we are. This is the only, we are not this, but this is where we are. And I think that's a meaningful distinction. I think uh, a lot of the reason that people consider, people call me, for example, a doomer is because of my insistence that we're not going to push anything forward through the forms of democracy and media that we have now. They think that means, oh, you think humanity is doomed. 
No, I think this iteration, this idea of the self that we inhabit is not viable. It is a psychosis that will be corrected by nature. That does not mean that it's the end of humanity. That is the beginning of humanity. And the main thing that that involves is the reduction of the ego. It is not the death of the spirit in the way that these people think you're talking about, or the mass death of humanity even. It is the reconfiguration of the ego towards others. So that means that, well, the, the, the people that we inhabit to interact on social media are husks are broken people and we and the reason and we may, we orient our politics by looking at other versions of us other broken people wearing these broken people costumes to talk to each other and finding one specific contrasting point and then fixating on that and saying you're actually the problem everything sucks because of you but it's just a fucking mirror And yeah, that is a hopeless, sterile contest. Politics as we understand it, as we express it in there and media, yes, that is sterile. But that is not us. That is us in those moments. Yes, we spend too many of our moments doing that, but we also spend our moments together and we spend our moments trying to survive. And it's what we do there that will transform us. And that transformation can happen instantaneously and dramatically enough that it doesn't matter that for the most of the time we all feel like we're trapped in these lives. The change that can happen to humans is almost is instantaneous and not maybe totally dramatic, but it snaps us from one understanding of ourselves and pushes us on down a different path. And it is a katamasi damarsi. What is that fucking video game called? Accumulation of a new soul. Part is stripped away by traumatic uh, shifts in our understanding of the world around us. And, our, and, and the time we spend doing things. And then the for, the movement forward creates a Katamari Damacy effect as we just create a big ball of, of, of spirit. So we will all have our confrontations with the true conditions of our lives, and we will all move forward from that. And that will be where humanity lives. One way or the other, predicting it is pointless. You have to live it. You can look at the past for contours and for like some, some degree of eternal verities, but you have to bring not like a structure with you into your future, but a heart. Well, someone brings up the very strong point that this is an excuse to just keep jacking yourself off instead of uh, doing direct action to the point of uh, compromising enemies to a permanent end. That's true. But again, what did I say? In this moment, we are the husk versions of ourselves. If we're going to do anything like that, and I sure as shit I'm not saying I am, because I am comfortable. It's going to take a lot to move me off the block. Let me be honest. But right now, I am, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the mask. I'm in the, I'm in this, I'm in the husk zone with everybody else. 
I couldn't talk about doing that if I wanted to. Anybody who who talked about that in here, in this zone, anybody who posts about that, by definition, is either trying to get somebody arrested or is full of shit. I'm not saying that your heart might not want you to do something like that. But all of the thought and planning had to be done in the real world with other people, not winding yourself up with what is essentially your own voice kicked back to you, which is what social media is. So I am happy to meet you as a husk because I feel like even though I am a husk, this is like enough of a vocation, as pathetic as that is, and, and awful that, that, that capitalism has thrown up this way to be. But as long as it is, I'm going to try to be the huskiest husk I can be. And that's why I try to talk about history, baby, because I feel like that's where we can spark an illuminating flame that we can carry with us. I like this. Someone says, uh, what do they make of the Walter Benjamin quote that revolutions aren't the locomotives of history, but people pulling the emergency brake? Indeed, that's exactly what they are. No, we are not, there is no way that we can look at the history of revolutions in the modern era and say that any of them were instigated by any group of revolutionaries. Even our beloved Russian revolution, the Paradiminic revolution, which I would argue is only really relevant in the specific context that we don't aren't in anymore. And so therefore the value that we want to ascribe to it from a tactical perspective is uh, pretty marginal. We're talking about a country that once again, encountered feudalism uh, where feudalism encountered uh, capitalism directly in the 19th century. The United States is a country that never even had a feudal era. You could argue about uh, slavery in the South, but like the creation of a racial caste, meant that uh, white citizens of the United States never had a feudal condition of, of relationship to power. But anyway, even if you want to talk about the Russian Revolution, the, the uh, will and vision of Trotsky and Lenin, uh, that's only in the context of World War I uh, and the February Revolution. Just the fact that the state machine was incapable of fighting a modern war and why should it it was still on a feudal it was on a feudal engine it was trying to fight a a a, a 20th century technological war with a feudal a social engine Uh, one third of white Southerners are were landless and propertyless, propertyless in 1860. That is more than anything the real tragedy of Reconstruction is that. Yes, they should have killed all the fucking planters. Obviously, they should have strung up everybody with epaulets on his shoulder in the fucking Confederate Army. There is no question that that's what you do if you want your your regime to withstand uh, a challenge to it. 
you do that as a minimum. But the real failure of Reconstruction, the less satisfying and sanguine one, but the real grassroots one was failing to incorporate the poor landless uh, whites of the South into a political coalition in the Republican Party with the freed slaves, which was possible. And I think that a close study of Reconstruction shows that it was possible, which to me means that the whole racial inevitability DNA story that America was doomed is incorrect, which is where I get my wellspring of belief in the human spirit from. And you see the evidence if you're looking for it, and of course, you're motivated to, but so what? I got to live in this life. But there was a chance to expropriate the big landowners of the South and redistribute that land to both former slaves and landless whites to create a unstoppable political machine. The reason that didn't happen, the main reason that didn't happen, is that the, the Republican Party, post-Lincoln, had been taken over by its reactionary wing, which is exactly what would happen later, after the death of FDR, when the reactionary wing of the Democratic Party took power. Johnson was the worst possible outcome. There's nobody else who could have gotten this, the, the, the VP nomination. No other conceivable candidate. When you think of like who he realistically could have offered, obviously they offered it to Benjamin Butler, but if they left it to Hamlin, if they'd given it to, uh, to uh, uh, Salmon P. Chase, for Christ's sake, who was a complete buffoon. And I think, honestly, when you look at how America's history cracks and how contingent the cracks start with, like the real, the first thing that, that, that pushes us in one direction or another, the way they come, the assassination of Lincoln, the replacement with Johnson, the death of FDR, the replacement with uh, Truman, and the way that these accumulate, you're both seeing, you know, the will, the wish, the, the wistful desire for things to be different, but also... Uh, a suspicion that we might just be in a timeline defined by defeat and that the victory will come for people who, to whom we are in cultural respect, strangers. And that's fine. But you have early collaboration among, uh, uh, poor whites and, and not even all the poor whites, in, in areas, uh, in the Appalachian areas, uh, and in, in the hill country, in the, in the interior south where there wasn't a lot of slavery, local white opinion was hostile to the Confederacy as a concept. They stayed loyal to the Union the whole goddamn war. And they got oppressed for it. They got, they got uh, chased down by, uh, by uh, uh, people hunting draft, like bounty hunters who were hunting draft dodgers and shit. And they were happy to punish the fucking uh, planters after the war. They were the ones who they blamed for it, as did the whites, uh, <coughs> middle-class whites in the North, by the way. They were happy to fucking punish the Southerners more. Yeah, Southern West Virginia was pro-Confederate, the part that's closest to the fucking uh, bottomland. East Tennessee, which would have succeeded if there'd been more Union troops there to defend the local leadership, uh, they would have fucking seceded from Tennessee, but they were but they were occupied militarily by the South, and they fucking hung a bunch of the local Unionists. 
But why do the whites not adhere? Racism played a big part, but the more critical part, the more material part, is that we never really got a reconstruction of the South, the way, say, that Europe got a reconstruction after World War II. There was not a massive public investment in the South. There was a dribble of private investment, mostly around speculative railroad concerns who were wildly corrupt. And why? Because the reactionaries who took over the Republican Party on behalf of uh, the old Whig business interests wanted a strong dollar, wanted to get the, uh, the greenbacks out of the system, wanted to prevent the redistribution that would come from inflation. Because re re at that point, inflation would have been redistributive, which is why Brian ran on silver in 1896. And what they were helped with, one, an ideological commitment to the idea of sound money as a metaphysical reality as opposed to just a contingency. And two, the fact that the British fucking pound was gold-backed. And the British trade system depended on uh, discipline towards gold and would punish countries that printed too much money. So that's why I think ideally, so here's my ideal situation. Somebody said, what's the ideal? Uh, oh boy, I'm cooking now. Okay. Cap this boys, girls, if there are any. Somebody said, what's the best uh, uh, person to succeed Lincoln? And uh, I've, of course, said in the past about how awesome it would have been if Benjamin Butler succeeded Lincoln. But the main reason I think Butler would be number one is not because I think he would have stewarded us to some sort of peaceful solution. Hot poppycock. No way. The, the whole half, second half of the 19th century is going to be a bloodbath, like it was in our timeline. But it was a bloodbath that resulted in the domination of a capitalist state. Benjamin Butler gets in there. Our, our uh, crooked Massachusetts machine hack, this, this fucking boss tweed motherfucker who made his bones kissing the asses of Irish textile workers uh, in Massachusetts who bought his commission into the U.S. Army. by, uh, by He bought a, uh, a textile factory and then uh, made them the sole supplier of uniforms for the uh, troops that were raised in by the Massachusetts militias or the Mass by, the Mass by the state of Massachusetts because the states did the actual mobilization in the, in the, uh, at the, when the war began. And he was like, if you guys want these uniforms, you got to make me a general. So he and he was a terrible general, but he was vindictive against the South. He was a demagogue in every way. But if he'd been in there, you have a demagoguery matrix that tells you to uh, back the former slaves in the South. They will be your guys. They will they will they will owe their freedom and their prosperity to you. Ally them with the poor whites at the expense of the defeated Confederates. We have power. We can crush them. Everybody who said we couldn't crush them was operating off some liberal Carl Schurz bullshit that fucking Benjamin Butler did not believe in. Now, of course, doing that, waging what amounts to sort of a quasi-war uh, uh, 
a class war disguised in a race war on, in the South is going to have reactions in the North. How are you going to deal with that? How are you going to deal with the fact that you've got all these, uh, all these uh, immigrant workers in the big cities of the North who hate you, who hate blacks, who hate the Republican Party, who resisted conscription, rioted to prevent it? How are you going to defeat the combined might of like uh, American capital and, of course, the reactionary smallholders of the Midwest with these guys at your uh, stabbing you in the back? Uh, how about you decide to go to war with England, which has the added benefit of dealing with the uh, being under the sway of the uh, English pound? So Butler goes to war in the South with the old Confederate uh, leadership and the clan owners, and then goes to war on behalf of his uh, of his potential uh, clients in the American machine dem de uh, democratic cities that he come came out of. Goes to war with the fucking British, and breaks the Anglo stranglehold on the global world system right then and there. And then in those conditions of war, continued war, uh, the uh, opponents to Butler's rule uh, among the ruling elites are uh, defeated. Now, of course, that only creates a tin pot dictatorship, the kind of things that the kind of thing that the uh, that the defenders of liberalism were horrified by. And if this was all you get, would have been vindicated by. But. Even in this situation, class conflict continues. Uh, no dictatorship is able to uh, contain it, which means that this new uh, Amer this new political organism that comprises the lo lowest tier of Americans uh, could coherently take power, as opposed to what happened in our country, where. They were all defeated in pieces, the immigrants, uh, the landless whites, and the former slaves. Of course, this is a whimsy and a fancy, but it's fun to think about. That's why there's all those damn video games people have. Uh, somebody says, is there going to be a Hell on Earth Civil War pod? In the U.S. Civil War pod? Not by itself, but I, we are toying with the idea of, after the Seven Years' War thing, doing a uh, history of the mid-19th century paroxysm, like when capitalism awakens. Like, yes, it's taking power in places before that, but the period from the war, the, 14, the 1848 revolt to the end of, say, the Taiping Rebellion and the establishment of, like, the Raj is when capitalism genuinely arrives everywhere. And the mark of that is this chain of apocalyptic uh, social conflicts that go around the entire globe. The United States Civil War would be part of that, but it would not be uh, the only one. We can also talk about the Taiping Rebellion, of course, like I said. So yeah, that's that's very ambitious, but we'll see. If we do, if we are happy with the Seven Years War one, we'll probably do it. And that is why, to me, that is the most fascinating period in world history, because you're talking about a a a a, a world where capitalism, at its like mature form, 
as a subjectivity, as an expression of the self through technology, is confronting social worlds that are fully enchanted. And like the conflicts are just so breathtaking for that fact. They're charged with this, this uh, uh, mysticism. A friend of mine, uh, Everett, from Age of Napoleon, wonderful podcast, uh, once described how uh, just he tried, he was describing how hallucinatory the Nat Turner rebellion is by saying you can kind of imagine it as like a National Guard unit going up against like a wizard, like Merlin versus, uh, uh, you know, Kent State guys. Like when when the uh, the guys in Afghanistan killed the giant. Yeah, it is wild that Russia survived. They were uh, they had that dog in them, no question. And then they got to come way from the back of the pack to uh, unify Germany. Like the Habsburgs couldn't do it. The Wittelsbachs couldn't do it. It was the fucking Hohenzollerns. Who the hell saw that coming from the top rope? By just min-maxing min uh, a, a army build. Just putting all your stats in army. Because that is, when you're behind the eight ball, uh, Economically, that is a leveler because there are uh, force multipliers there that aren't directly tied to capitalist production. Escape from Rome, yeah, that's the the, Ernst, the Scheidler Scheidel book. I can never pronounce the stupid name. Highly, highly recommend that one. Yeah, and it's thanks to the Prussians that we have the the uh, modern uh, his humanities, the, the Western, uh, the disciplines, history among them. A fucking iron prison of the of, of Prussian design. Yeah, Rome set the blueprint. Correct, like that was the distinguishing feature of the Roman. Uh, polity when they came to power was their ability to uh, uh, marshal maximally efficient uh, military capacity. But the problem is, is that that only works in certain conditions, and that was the end. Of, that was the final tragedy of the Germans: is that because they were on the outside line, they lane they had to fixate on militarism and it got them to parity and it got them beyond like the Germans started outplacing Britain for industrial output, like before world war one. But that was all creating huge, uh, buildups of social, uh, contradiction and tension that a late to the party. Germany could not express colonially. It couldn't lance the boil. And so, It turns out, though, the quality, uh, the qual quantity has a quality all its own. 
and a uh, the combined might of a of a global empire like the British uh, will over time, especially when allied with the United States, will uh, eventually defeat all comers, no matter how uh, much they might focus on a martial social order and martial technologies, because at a certain point, you know, marginal utility evaporates. It's one thing to go up against a declining Austria and a stagnant Russia, uh, like, and, and, and France, like, yes, France, uh, that's toughy. That's tough, but it's nothing on, uh, modern military forces that squeeze almost all of the, uh, Excess, uh, all of the uh, all the inefficiency out of the system. Like you can no longer, uh, as an underdog, gain enough advantage to overcome just being behind, just less productive. And so, yeah, the United States, uh, it created like a, a, mach a machine of social violence that was unprecedented. But one of the things that was unprecedented about it is, is that its, its edges were pointed in, in, uh, interiorly to a much greater degree than they were in any of the other countries. So it's not just like military innovation. It's an entire way to make a, a society of uh, antisocial psychopaths. And that's why I do wonder about what it would have been like if Marx had gone to Brit uh, Texas, as he and Engels thought about doing after the Failures of the 1848 rebellion. Like, if he had seen up close and personal just how we were transforming uh, human behavior, the, the human spirit, how we were redefining God in the blood meridian. All right, leave you with that. Have a good time, folks. Mm -hmm.